Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Uh, it's a passage we were on last time we were together, but there's so much more here. I just felt like we just couldn't move on until we dug in a little bit deeper into it. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This is the section we're going to try to really dive into tonight. Uh, turn, put a bookmark here and just back up a couple of books to Galatians chapter one. I just want to hit briefly when Paul said that for the sake of Christ, he suffered the loss of all things. I want you to kind of get a picture of what was really included in all that. Galatians chapter one, verses 13 and 14. Paul says, for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now, then he goes on and talks about how he came to know the Lord. Now, look at what he said. He said, I was advancing among, ahead of most of the guys my age in Judaism. And he was a Pharisee. And as you remember, we've already saw last time we were together, he said, if anybody has reason to have confidence in the flesh and in their own effort to get themselves right before God, he said, I had the most. He didn't say I was one of the top. He pretty much said, I challenge you to show me anybody that was more zealous in their own effort to be righteous before God. I think I had the most. And then he said he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Pharisee of the Pharisees. And like we touched on last time we were together, Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, made an interesting statement. As he was trying to teach to the Pharisees and to the crowd of Jews that were there, the fact that you think you're righteous because you're trying to keep the law, you're actually, even in you thinking you're keeping the law, you're not keeping the law. And in doing so, he made a statement in Matthew 5, verse 20, where he said this. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven. Now, if you were a regular Jew and your mindset was, I'll never be as righteous as those Pharisees. What did you just hear Jesus say when you said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you can't get into heaven? You're not. It's impossible for you to get there. Now, the Pharisees, though, thought, <laughs> no, it has to surpass that of the Pharisees. And actually, God opened up Paul's eyes to realize that even though he thought he was blameless, even though he thought he was righteous, he wasn't. And when he forsook all that he had spent his whole life in, striving to go up the ladder and move it up in, 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 among people his age in Judaism, when he gave that all away for the sake of knowing Christ, he suffered the loss of all things. Now, we could spend time trying to debate or discuss possibly what all he gave up. We'd be speculating in some areas. But I just want you to understand that when Paul says, and what he's going to be talking about tonight, about having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, it is the most valuable thing. Everything else falls to the wayside. Now, does that remind you of any teaching of Jesus? The pearl of great price and how he sold all that he had to get it. And so what we're going to be doing tonight is, is I want to take some time. I put it in my notes here. I, I wrote, I hope and I believe that you know what this righteousness from God and not from us is. But it really won't hurt us to look at it. Because I've come to realize that as much as Christians on the surface 
are able to say roughly what this righteousness from God and not from us according to the law is and how it's in faith in Christ. I think most Christians can surfacely explain it. As I hope to be able to show you tonight, who was Paul writing to when he said, I want to gain Christ and know, have a righteousness that's not of my own, which comes from the law, but which comes through faith in Christ? Who was he writing to? Boy, if you don't know that, we've got to go back to the introduction of Philippians. <laughs> who was he writing to? He was writing to Christians in the church in Philippi. He wasn't writing to lost people, folks. He was writing to the saints there in Philippi, and especially you overseers and deacons. He was writing to Christians and saying, I want to have a righteousness that comes from not me, but from God. Now, we got to stop for a second. We got to stop and say, wait a minute, did Paul think he didn't have righteousness? No, you hopefully understand that Paul has already made statements in Romans chapter 5, where he says that since we have been justified by faith, we're at peace with God. And we enter into this grace in which we now stand. Paul had already taught that if you have trusted Christ, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. Did Paul think that he wasn't saved? No, Paul knew full well that he was saved. He knew that he was signed, sealed, and delivered. Yet Paul, writing to Christians, says, I want to have a righteousness that doesn't come from me. What I want you to see tonight as we go into this, I'm going to give you the basics, the basic foundation levels of what this righteousness from God and not from us is. But I hope that we go deeper tonight than that. And in a second, hopefully a few minutes I'll let you know what I mean by that. But let's just lay the foundation. Go to Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read to you chapter 3, verses 9 through 31. And I'll do my best not to preach the whole book. <laughs> Paul has been laying out in chapters 1, 2, and 3, in the beginning of chapter 3, the fact that there's no one righteous before God. And he's about to make that statement. But he points out the fact that God is his wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and wickedness and those who suppress the truth. And how God has revealed himself in chapter one, he says, God's revealed himself through all that's been made so that everyone's without excuse. And then he deals with the fact that not only has God given his law to the nation of Israel, but those who are outside the law in the sense of the Gentiles who haven't been given the edicts of God. He put his law on their hearts, he says, in the end of chapter two, near the end of chapter two. And he says that when, when, when Gentiles who don't have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they're a law to them. And every one of us, and you've heard me say this before, every one of us are born with a sense of right and wrong. Now, we may not agree on what we think is right and wrong, but every human being on this planet thinks certain things are right and certain things are wrong. And I'm going to ask you a simple question. Whether you've ever heard God's law and what he says is right and wrong, have you ever gone against what you think is right or wrong? Well, whether you've heard the law of God or not in the written word of God, he's already revealed to you you're a lawbreaker, Paul said. And so at the beginning of chapter 3, he said, what advantage do the Jews have? He said, well, they do have a little bit of an advantage. They've been given the oracles of God. But now in chapter 3, verse 9, he makes this statement. He said, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged 
that all, both Jews and Gentiles or Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And then he quotes from Old Testament passages. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. By the way, who's under the law? Good for you. That means you were listening. See, because people read that and they say, well, that's only talking about the Jews. No, look at the rest of the context here. It says that now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. That's why you needed to understand what we just talked about in chapter one and chapter two. He's revealed God's revealed himself, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. He's already shown you you're a lawbreaker. And whether you've had the written law or not, everybody's under the law. For by the works of the law. No human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The purpose of God's law is to show you you can't keep God's law. The purpose of God's law is to show you you're a sinner. The MRI does not give you cancer. It shows you, there's some conspiracy theorists probably think it does, but it, it just shows you what's already there. It didn't give you the cancer. It just revealed what it was. The law doesn't give you cancer. You got that. It's called sin. But it reveals it. Years ago, uh, when I was in New Orleans, I had a buddy of mine, and he and I had a painting business that we were doing while I was in seminary. And, and uh, he also worked at night at this funeral home uh, because the, the law was at that time in New Orleans that if there was a dead body uh, in, the, in, the, in the funeral home, they couldn't leave it unattended overnight. How many of you ever remember the old songs like Grace Stevens sitting up with the dead and that kind of stuff? They, they, used to, they used to always sit up at night with the dead in the old country churches because they didn't want to leave a dead body alone overnight. So in the New Orleans funeral homes, they hire seminary students to come sit up all night and stay awake if there's a dead body in the, in the funeral home at night. And so seminary students will say, you pay me to study, I'll stay up. And they would read and study and just, well, my buddy James had... Uh, Worked that night before at the funeral home. And so he comes to pick me up in his pickup truck. As we're going to drive that morning to go paint somewhere, he says, Jim, um, you got to help me. He said, uh, I got a speeding ticket yesterday and they took my license. Now, that's what they would do. If they would give you a pink slip of paper, you could still drive. But they took your driver's license until you got it taken care of. And if you get a ticket with that pink piece of paper, you're really in trouble. <laughs> so he said, all I got is this pink piece of paper. I need you to help me out. I said, OK, we'll, we'll keep an eye on the speed limit signs. And so we're driving down this road and we're heading toward where we're going to go paint. And we can see a police officer up ahead clocking people. He said, all right, I'm going to go 35. and I'm going to make sure I'm going 35. You watch my speedometer. I said, I'm watching it. And he was going 35. We pass that officer and all of a sudden, woo, he pulls us over. The guy walks up and he says, uh, license and registration. And before my friend could give him his license, he said, hang on. He said, I was going 35. I have a witness here who was watching my speedometer. I was going 35. And the police officer says, OK, I'll make it 35. I had you at 33, but we'll make it 35. This is a school zone. <laughs> we thought we were righteous. Did the law make us sin? No. It just revealed that we weren't as righteous as we thought we were. Do you understand? 
Paul says that God's law is to just simply show us you can't do it. That's why when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus doesn't say, pray this prayer. What does he say? Actually, the get rid of everything is the second thing he said. What's the first thing he told him to do? Most people forget this. He says, keep the law. He says, keep the law. The guy goes, I have since my youth. But why does Jesus say, give him the law first? Because the law's purpose is to show him his sin. The guy doesn't think he is a sinner. He says, I have since my youth. Now, I can picture Jesus under his breath thinking to himself, liar. That's one. But uh, the guy doesn't think he's a sinner. So what does Jesus do? He said, let me paraphrase what Jesus does when he says, sell all you have, give to the poor and come follow me. He says, I'll paraphrase it for you. He's pretty much saying to the guy, you've been able to keep the whole law. That's awesome. I've summed up the whole law into two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. If you're able to keep the whole law, this will be simple for you. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor. That's the neighbor part. And come follow me. And the guy went away sad. What did Jesus do when he told him to sell everything he had, give it to the poor and come follow him? All he did was repackage the law to show him where he really was. Now the guy went away sad and Jesus didn't chase him. The purpose of the law is to show us that we have a problem. Now look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness, I had so much fun preaching at Men in Motion today and showing these guys all that the Old Testament had said about who Jesus was and how John 35, Jesus says in verse 39, you search the scriptures intently and diligently to see whether or not how you can gain eternal life. These are the scriptures that talk about me. How when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, who showed up on the mountain there with him? Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets came visibly to testify that he is who he is. Who wrote the first five books, five books of the Bible? Moses. That's the law. And the prophets, Elijah represented the prophets. The law and the prophets not only had been talking about it, they visibly showed up to testify that he is who he is. And I showed them from Titus chapter 1, verse 2, how God had promised the salvation through Christ before the world began. Christianity is not a new religion. It's not a tweaking of Judaism. It is the only faith that has always been. We didn't know his name. But the scriptures had always, before the creation of the world, the Bible says it had been God's plan. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we see that the Satan is going to bruise someone's heel and that someone is going to crush his head. And from that moment on, in Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God. And the scripture says, and it was credited to him as righteousness. All along, folks, the Bible has taught that salvation is through a relationship with God. I will be their God and they will be my people by faith. And he'll give you righteousness. I don't have the time to read you from Isaiah or where it from Job, but all the way through. And I laid out for them today the fact that our faith as Christians is not one of the new religions or one of the other religions that out there. Folks, Islam didn't even start until 600 years after the church had even been around. But Christianity didn't start when Jesus came onto the earth. The scriptures have all been pointing to Jesus Christ. We just happen to know his name now. But it's always been by faith in God, the creator, and his provision for our sins in a relationship. So this righteousness from God has been made known or manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, they've been talking about it all along. 
the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who what? Believe. That's it. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That was this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. He hadn't dealt with them yet through Christ, but he was going to. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just in the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? And when they keep saying law, it's by our own effort, by what we do. Now, I say this to you because this is where I'm going to go in a little bit here. Do we not still think that if we do certain things, God will be pleased with us? And if we don't do certain things, God won't be pleased with us? This is where we're going. I just want to give you a taste of it. Paul, when he said, I want to gain Christ and have a righteousness that doesn't come from me at all. He'd already been given righteousness because of Christ. Yet, Paul, I'm sure, because of who Satan is and how his tactics do not change, probably still had a tendency to fall back into that old mindset of, maybe if I read my Bible more, maybe if I do these things, I will gain pleasure in God's eyes. That's trying to gain a righteousness that's from the law. What you do. Here. Oh, wretched man that I am. Yeah. Thank God it's all because of him and not because of us. No, he says, then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Not by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from anything they do, from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law is still good, folks. It's holy. When God says, here's what I want you to do and here's how I want you to live, it's revealing his heart and who he is. And we hope it's still being used because without that, no one will come understand their sinfulness. The problem is, too many Christians still think that God's going to judge me by how good I've been. Don't we? I do. I fall into that mindset. So when Paul says, I want to have a righteousness that doesn't come from me at all. Well, I've already got that righteousness. Yeah, but I want to experience it all the time. It's there, and that's where we're going to go tonight, in the power, knowing the power of his resurrection. You know Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, right? For it is by grace you have been what? Saved by what? Through faith and what? It is not of yourselves, not of works. It's what? It's a gift of God so no one can boast. It has nothing to do with how good you've been. I travel around and I talk to people. And a lot of times when I meet someone for the first time and they're wanting to come talk to me after a service, my first process is to assess where they are in their relationship with the Lord. Do they even know him? You know, if they don't know them, I need to know that because that'll determine how I teach you. It's kind of like any of you who's ever taught a class or you've been a substitute teacher and they call you up and they say, hey, could you fill in on Monday in such and such a class? Your first question is, what grade am I going to be dealing with? Are they kindergartners? Are they fifth graders? Because that will determine how you set your lesson plan, correct? 
That's what I do. I'll say, hey, tell me about your relationship with God. Do you know the Lord? Do you know if you're going to heaven when, when you die? All these things. And I'm assessing real quickly, where are they? So that'll determine how I talk to them. It grieves me. How often older Christians will answer the question, if you die today, would you go to heaven? When they say, not only I hope so, if they say yes, I'll say, how do you know? And they'll say, because I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to live a good life. Did you hear what they just said? My righteousness is coming some from God and some from me. Oh, if we could really get to the point that it's all from him. It's all from him. Even the righteousness to be able to live out the sanctified process, being conformed into his image. You still can't do it. What did Jesus say in John 15, 5? Apart from me, you can do. But we don't believe it. See, this is where we're going tonight, folks. It's time we move beyond the basics of knowing, I know I'm going to heaven when I die because Jesus died for my sins and I trusted him as my Savior. Yet, we don't really let the depth of this truth move us beyond just the basics. When trouble comes, our first thoughts are, God's mad. What have I done wrong? How can I get out of this? How can I get back to a comfortable life? Which, as the Bible is going to show us tonight, Paul said, I want to not leave the power of his resurrection. I want to fellowship in the sharing in his sufferings. Well, go with me to Romans chapter 5. You're in Romans chapter 3. Turn over to chapter 5. I just want to lay a further foundation here, okay? You have been, if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, if you have trusted that what he did covers you, you've asked him, he's given you eternal life, he's sealed you with his spirit, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The war's over. Your sin's been dealt with. You're his child. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we what? Man, you got to let this sink in for a minute, folks. This is why... There were some who were teaching falsely, hey, if this doctrine they teach is really true, I can sin. I can do whatever I want. I can do whatever with my body because I've already been declared righteous. That's a false teaching, but they were coming off of the fact that the real biblical gospel is, if you've truly been given righteousness, you've been given righteousness. You are declared righteous. Yeah, but what if I... no? The Bible says over a long period of time, there'll be evidence as to whether or not there's been a transformation through the Spirit of God within you as He works His work out in you. But don't worry about how you do. You're, you're standing in God's grace, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, we, not only do we rejoice about what's coming, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How, it's in the context here of this, what he's saying. Since we've been justified through faith in Christ, we're at peace with God. Therefore, we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because I can know for a fact that if I'm going through something, it's not because God's mad at me. Look what he goes on and says later on in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, I love this, 
much more shall we be saved by him from what? From the wrath of God. I was preaching a few weeks ago, and I'm not going to say where, because people listen to the recording. And I was teaching on the fact that if you're in Christ, you don't need to worry about the punishment of God. Oh, God still disciplines us. He still shapes us. He still molds us a loving parent. And the scriptures, by the way, if you look at Hebrews chapter 12, it doesn't say some discipline is unpleasant. It says all discipline is not pleasant. But I taught at this church that if you're in Christ, God will never be angry at you. He's already fully put out his wrath on Jesus Christ. Jesus paid the full penalty for your sins. Your father may discipline you and it may feel like punishment, but it will never be punishment. It'll never be his wrath. You've been spared from his wrath. This pastor took me to lunch and said, I know what you said is biblically true, but you should not have told them. (laughs) He wanted them to stay under this fear of God's wrath. Listen to what he says here. Is this not what Paul's saying? That when I was his enemy, he died for me and then reached out and said, Jim, you don't have to do anything. Just receive my love. Receive my forgiveness. Is that not the gospel for beginning of salvation? How much more now, after having been reconciled, should we not think that God says, if you do these things, then I will? Confession is not you telling God what you've done and then he washes you. Confession is you responding to a God who continually pursues you and says, I want to do this for you. I want to do this for you. You need to let me wash you. You Isn't that what confessing your sins is when it comes to salvation? God has already paid for the sins of the world through the death of Christ on the cross. And he is calling out to the world and saying, it's already been paid for. It's already been done. I love you. I want you to receive it. If you reject it, you'll spend eternity away from me. And the sin you'll be judged for is not the sins you've done as much because they were paid for. But you are a rejection of me offering my son. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way. That's the only sin not forgiven. When the Spirit of God draws you and you say no. But listen, if God is reaching out continually to the lost and saying, you don't have to do anything, just receive it. Agree with me that you need this. That's confession. Homo means to agree with God or to say the same thing. God initiates the conversation and the lost are just simply to say, you are right. I agree. I receive it. Listen, listen, listen. We as Christians still need to confess. We still need to agree with God. But we have to understand that God is not sitting back and waiting for us to do a couple of things and then he'll respond. God, in the same way, even the Paul says a couple of times here, much more now that we're at peace with him, is continually reaching out to his children in love. Continually, continually, continually. Show me where God sat back and waited for them. No, he's pursuing. He's pursuing. Oh, Jim, what about the, that, that kid in the prodigal son story? No, the father was out looking, waiting for him. And he ran in his direction. And the guy hadn't even said, I'm sorry, forgive me. He ran in his direction. The two men on the road to Emmaus were discouraged. We thought he was the one. Now we're not so sure. Some of our women said he was alive, but I don't know. A couple of our guys went and checked the tomb, but he wasn't there. Ah, let's just go home. Who chased them down? Who was the one that said, go tell my brothers and Peter? 
Who is the one that himself went and revealed himself first to Peter and then to the others? Who is the pursuer? It's Jesus. And he's not just pursuing the world. He's pursuing his children. We just need to agree and say, apart from you, I can't even live this Christian life. And I agree with you. When we start to really understand that, that depth of where Paul's going with, I want a righteousness that doesn't come from how good I've been this week. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. He makes a couple of statements here that we need to deal with. One we won't even have time to get to tonight, uh, a third one. We'll deal with that the next week. He said he wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection and that also he wants to share in Jesus' sufferings. Now, you say, hey, I've loved everything you said so far and it sounded good and I'm there and I'm with you and in my spirit I know you're right and I want to go there. But to be honest with you, Jim, you just killed it. The power of his resurrection stuff, that's good. I like that stuff. But the sharing in his sufferings, nah, I don't want to go to that level. And to be honest with you, whether you thought the thoughts or said the words, we all feel that way. If I were to ask you, how many of you want God to discipline you today? What would you say? Your first reaction is, no, I'm good. Thanks. You know, I'm all right. Yeah, but we do say mold me, make me. Mold me, make me. That's what discipline is. But we hear the word discipline and we hear pain, suffering, punishment. We hear he's going to spank me. It's going to hurt. But doesn't the book of Hebrews say that if you're not being disciplined, you're not his child? That's okay. He can do it to the person next to me. There's something here we got to get to, folks. I'm praying that the Spirit of God helps you get there. It's been years for me to really start to move, and I'm not even there yet myself. Of course, Paul said, I don't even see that I've attained it yet. Molding and shaping and teaching and training, that's all of what it is. Yes, you're right. Well, we're going to get to the suffering part in a second. Let's deal with this power of the resurrection first. All right. Now, let me just point out real quickly here um, that Paul says in this section that we're in. He says, verse seven, for whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. What? Listen closely again. What does he say? Does he say our Lord? My Lord. Now, if you want to move into this level. You got to understand. Now, again, don't hear this as you got to do or else. No, but there's an element where our action is involved in our faith. The Bible, people think that, that Paul's writings in the book of James contradict each other because Paul says we're saved by grace and not by our works and by faith and not by works. And James says, yeah, you say you got faith. You better show me by your actions. And, and for years, the book of James almost didn't even make it into the canon of Scripture because they thought they were contradicting each other until they realized James and Paul were saying the same thing from two different sides. So when I'm going to talk to you tonight about the things that you are to do now, it's not that you do them and then God will. No, your doing will be evidence that you really do believe. Okay. Paul says, Jesus is my Lord. This is personal, folks. We may call him Lord, but do we obey him as Lord? Jesus himself, we're not going to turn there in Luke 6, says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? I'm... I'm just going to lay it out to you. I, I, and I believe most everybody in here is Christian. I, most everybody in here knows the Lord. There may be some that don't. But even for those of us who are Christians, I know I too myself, one of the ways that God uses to help me 
let him do what he needs to do in my life is when he has to remind me, Jim, you call me Lord, but you really don't listen. Now, he tells me this. He's not mad. He's, it's in love. It's firm. But it's truth. We need to hear it. Is he your Lord? Do you call him Lord? Or do you listen when he speaks? That's not for me to determine. That's between you and him. Do you call him Lord like Martha and then boss him around? Lord, Lord, tell my sister to help me. Do you call him Lord and then tell him how he ought to do it and what he should have done or shouldn't have done? Are you mad at him because he didn't come through the way you thought he should have? Oh, he's my Lord, but I'm mad at him. Who's really Lord right now? So if you want to move into this, you need to, again, he's not mad at you. He knows. He knows every little detail of your whole life. He knows how it's all going to play out. You can't even disappoint him. If disappointment involves surprise, you can't disappoint God. He already knows how it's going to be. He loves you. Man, he loved you when you were his enemy. He loved you when you were a sinner. He died for you and reached out to you and he drew you. He chased you all over the world. Some of you, if you would tell your story of how you came to God, if you look back, he was chasing you. He was protecting you and he was wanting you to know him. What makes us think that all of a sudden, after we realize that he's been pursuing us our whole lives, that all of a sudden now God has changed his relationship with us to the point that now he's just sitting up there waiting for us to do it right. I've given you my word. Just just you do it right. And then, folks, he's still the pursuer. He's still the one chasing. He's still the one saying, I'm the one that's going to sanctify you. I'm the one that's going to finish what I started. I'm the one that's going to do this. And when you grasp this. That not only did my righteousness begin by him giving it to me, my daily righteousness is not tied to how good I do. But by believing that he said he would make me more like him, that he would finish what he started, that he would make my heart into his, toward him and my perseverance of Christ, that he would do it. And that's going to take, I don't know about you, but for me, it's going to take a power that's beyond Jim Johnson. When God says, Jim, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? All he's doing is pointing out to me the areas that I'm not agreeing with him and I'm resisting him. He's not doing it because he's mad. He's not doing it for any other reason to help me see what he already sees so that I'll agree with him and he can do what he wants to do as I say, OK, go ahead. When Jesus went to wash the disciples' feet in John 13, did they ask him to wash their feet? He just started washing them. Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but later you will. We've been for years taught that Jesus was teaching them service because he took on the role of the servant and he served. No, he wasn't teaching about service. If it was, Peter knew what he was doing. That's why Peter said, you're not going to serve me. Jesus says, you don't know what I'm doing right now. You think it's service, Peter. It's not service. But later you'll understand. And then he says, oh, and by the way, if you don't let me wash you, you don't even have a part in me. Peter says, give me the whole bath then. I want it all. And he says, you've already had the bath. Person, you're all clean. Well, there's one of you in the room right now that's not, and that's Judas. But if you've already had the bath, all you got to do is let me wash your feet. Listen, listen, listen. John 13 is teaching us about sanctification and how God pursues us. He's continually trying to wash you of these things that are still you're dealing with, these areas that aren't quite like Christ yet. He's trying to wash you 
when you stop saying, I'll do it myself, and agree with God that you need Him to do it, that's your confession of your sin. But Jim, doesn't it say if we confess our sins, then He's faithful and just? No, 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 it doesn't say then. It just simply says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen closely. What He's saying is this. If we agree with God that we need Him to wash us, He'll wash us. Oh, He's trying to, but we keep pushing Him away by saying, I'm going to do better. Most people don't even realize it because we were raised in this era. But in those times that you went to revival and the preacher just hammered you on how you weren't really living right. And you got up in your tears and you walked down the aisle and you said, I'm going to do better. God, I'm going to live for you. You didn't realize it, but you were really saying, I'll get righteousness myself. Yes, sir. You're, you're right. You're going to feel unworthy, not good enough. Yes, you're right. But what does it say in Romans chapter 8, verse 1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. You won't be condemned. By the way, who did Jesus choose to preach at Pentecost? Think about it for a minute. The one he chose to preach the first sermon where 3,000 people responded was the guy who had just a few days before, said publicly, I don't know him. And they even cussed him so they'd so they believe him. Does it really have a whole lot to do with how good we're doing? <laughs> By the way, the greatest revival according to the scriptures that we see, where a whole nation repented all at once. Does anybody know where that is? Nineveh. How righteous was that preacher? How obedient was he? And did he want them to respond? No, he, he said what God said, and then he went and sat to watch God just get him. And then when God didn't get him, he got mad. Yet Satan has convinced us that what God does in our life is tied to our righteousness. So I don't want a righteousness that comes from the law. And who's he writing to again? Was he writing to un-Christians or Christians? Christians. He says, I want to know the power of this resurrection. So, well, go to, go to Philippians 2. We'll just back up to Philippians 2. We've already looked at this, but just let me remind you of this. Paul puts this this way in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. He said, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But the verse 13 is the tied to it. We have a separate verse, but they're really together. For it is who? God. It's God who works in you both to what? Which means the desire and to work for his good pleasure. In other words, you need to take serious this relationship that we've been given. God will not do it unless you let him. That's where we have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because it's God who's in us who wants to give us the desire and work it out. But he won't give me the desire nor work it out until I believe what he has said and then ask him to do it and act like it's true. By the way, 
Does God want to save the world? Is he just going to go and save the world? No, what do they have to do? They have to respond to his call. They have to believe that what he said is true. They have to then say, would you please do it? Oh, he's the one that even puts the desire in our hearts, but unless we act on it, he won't finish. He's the one that draws us. He's the one that opens our eyes. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws them. It's God who's doing this work. But the person has to say, I believe what you said is true, and I believe you'll do it for me. God, I'm not going to just sit around, I'm going to say it nicely, digging in my nose in my Christian walk. I want you to do in and through me what you said you will. So would you give me, Lord, I want to love you more. But I can't. Would you give me a love for you? Guess what God's going to do? He's going to give you the desire and the Oh, well, by the way, you're now to act like what you prayed is going to happen. You don't sit back and say, well, I asked God and he didn't do it. What does the Bible say? That when we ask him, we need to ask in faith, believing that what we've remember, Jesus says, if you ask anything according to my name, you, you I've heard you and you know you can have it. And a lot of that we always say like, well, I want to win a bagel. No, it's not. It's tied to what he's already promised. It's tied to what he's already promised. And I've been meditating on that passage for a lot as I'm getting ready for the cruise where Jesus says, if you ask anything according to my will, if you ask anything in my name, heretofore you even ask, haven't asked anything in my name. But now if you ask anything in my name, you've got it. That means everything here that he has promised for us is already given to us. We now have to believe it. And we say, all right, Lord, I'm supposed to forgive so-and-so. I can't. I don't want to. There isn't a thing in me. I've tried. I can't do it. But you said that you will give me by your power everything I need for life and godliness. Therefore, I'm asking you, give me your grace. Give me the ability to forgive this person. And I believe that you will. See, over the years, I'm not the best for counseling. I'll tell you. People come to me and they want me to walk them through their struggles. I'm, man, I'm just a preacher, folks. I'm just going to just preach at you. I'm sorry. I've tried. I'm just I'm not real patient with some things because this one guy came to me and he said, I asked God to do something and I believed him and he didn't do it. I said, did you believe him? Yes, I believed him. Then why did you doubt that he was going to? Well, no, no. I asked him and, and he didn't do it. I said, then did you, you didn't believe that he would. No, I, I did. I believed that he would and he didn't come through. I said, no, you didn't believe that he would. No, yes, I did. He says, I believed him and he just didn't come through. I said, no, you didn't believe that he would. Because if you really believed that he would, you would never, ever say he didn't. He might not have done it on your timetable. But if you really believe that he will, it's going to happen. That's why Paul, when he was bit by that snake, which was an asp, and everybody usually puffs up right there and dies. They all went back and said, oh, this is a really bad criminal. He's just going to die in front of us. Paul, all he did was go, huh. Shook it off into the fire. Well, how come he didn't react any more than that? Just prior to that, God had shown up with an angel and said, Paul, you will go to Rome. He had gotten a promise from God, and he said, you will go to Rome. Now, Paul probably looked at it and said, oh, that could normally kill a guy, especially when someone's hanging on, fastened onto his hand, draining all his venom into me. That, you know what? But you know what? God said, I'm going to Rome, so this must not be killing me. And he shook it off. Do we really believe his word? The power of his resurrection is there. You have been given an unbelievable amount of promises, yet most Christians walk through, where is God? You don't understand. 
I, well, I haven't been good enough. You think it's the righteousness of your own, which has to do with law. Paul says, Christians, I don't want a righteousness that's tied to me. I don't want a righteousness after salvation that's tied to how good I've been. I want a righteousness that is totally done by him. That's all I want. Go to Philippians, uh, sorry, not Philippians, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Paul put it another way. We've already seen this before, but maybe now it'll begin to sink in. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verses 15 through 19. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for, toward all the saints, you're already saved, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I'm remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm praying what? That who will do what? That's a question. I'm praying that what? And who will do it? That the Father of glory, our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in, the, and have, in your knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is not only the hope to which he's called you, what's coming next, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what's going to happen in the future, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who what? Oh, it's the economy. I travel around the church. We just can't do it because of the economy. Things are tough for everybody and giving's down. It's the economy. Does the economy really have an effect on God? Remember when God told Elijah, hey, the, dude, the brook's dried up. I got a new there for you. I, I've already commanded a widow in Tyre and Sidon to supply you with food. Um, we go looking for the rich widow. Wouldn't we go looking? For, God said he had a, a widow. To, we just assumed rich widow is going to provide for us. What was the widow that God had chosen to supply Elijah? She was not only poor, she was destitute. She was making her last meal for her and her son. Oh, and by the way, when he said, thus says the Lord. Let me back up. He shows up into the town and he says, uh, Hey, could you give me something to drink? Now, most likely he was dressed like prophet's dress, and she recognized he was a man of God, so she went to go get him a drink. And as he's going, he says, oh, by the way, um, why don't you feed me while you're at it? In the verse 9 of 1 Kings 17, God says to Elijah, I have already commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Let me give you two quick questions. One, did the widow know that she had been commanded by God to supply him with food? She didn't. Because when, when Elijah says, feed me first, she doesn't say, oh, you're the one God told me about. She says, it ain't in the budget. <laughs> you ever heard that one? <laughs> How often in churches have I heard, it ain't in the budget? Oh, we don't know the power of him. If he's made a promise, he'll do it. Then what did it mean then when God said to Elijah, I've already commanded a widow to supply you with food? You see, she didn't know. But God says already, if you go back and double check me, 1 Kings 17, verse 9, I've already commanded a widow. But she doesn't know. Oh, the ravens knew they'd been commanded by God to feed him at that place. But now the widow doesn't know. How did God create the world? 
He spoke it. If he just says the word, it happens. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Oh, by the way, when Jesus, who is God, was on the earth, he commanded the wind and the waves. Instantly, they were still. He cursed the fig tree, died. He commanded the demons to come out. They instantly obeyed. Yet there's a story in the Bible where Jesus heals this man. And the, you double check me. All the translations say it the same way. He commanded him not to tell anyone. By the way, those of you who know that story, what did the guy do? <laughs> Listen, all of creation must instantly obey when God speaks, except man has been given the ability to say yes or no. So what did God say to Elijah when he said, I've already commanded a widow? He said this, I've already spoken it. My power's already been released. There's no question as to whether or not it's going to happen. The only if is tied to whether or not she walks in obedience to what I've said. That's why Elijah could look at her when she said, it ain't in the budget. And he says, thus says the Lord, if you feed me first, it won't run out. She could easily have said, like most people, how do you know, Elijah? Because God said it. The question in our personal lives, the question in our churches is not, can we do it? The question is not, is it in the budget? The question is, did God say it? And if he said it, he will do it. Dear, some of you know my story. I'm not going to take the time to tell it, but, but let me just say, when I resigned from my pastorate at First Baptist in the Atlantic, Coming up on full nine years ago, September 5th, we'll be starting the 10th year of Just a Preacher Ministries. We had no places lined up to speak and nobody promising me any money because I didn't even tell anybody I was resigning. I resigned before I even told Becky, bad move. <laughs> That's a story for another day. But we gave up the big salary, not knowing how I was going to pay a bill, but God had been speaking, and I had been wrestling, and been walking in disobedience, and I finally said, okay, Lord, I'll do, and I had no idea how we were going to pay a bill. Folks, that was almost nine years ago. And like I shared with you at the beginning, I don't have a brochure. And I am literally booked up every week between now and December 14th. He will do what he said he would do. But most Christians don't get any further than, I know I'm going to heaven when I die. I told my kids that I was going to use this as an illustration. They, they mock me for my iPhone. The reason is, I was the first one in our family to get an iPhone. Smartphone. Well, they say, Dad, it's a waste of time for you to have a smartphone. Because all I use it for is a phone. Once in a while, I figured out that I can use it as a flashlight to get to the bathroom in the middle of the night. <laughs> but my kids, my kids, they say, Dad, do you know you could get this app and that app? Do you know your phone can, you can put all your calendar on it and you can do all these things? And I'm like, nah, that's all right. That's good. It's a phone. I like it. I know. I, I, I text a little. I'm not real good at it. They say, you know, you can just talk into it and it'll text and there's all these things in it and it'll, you can check stocks. I don't have any. You know, Paul had stocks and bonds. I don't want any of those. And so uh, uh, some of you caught it. But um, <laughs> do you realize that most Christians go through their life the same way I do with my iPhone? I never take advantage of all that is here. 
I got a phone. It, it's what I need. I, I can answer it. I can talk. I don't, and I'm missing out on all this other stuff that's available. It might be pretty cool. The flashlight's not bad. <laughs> it's pretty cool. You just flip it up and... Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Folks, do you realize what that just said? To him who is able to do far more abundantly than you ever could imagine. Please, do not take this to the unbiblical realm of if I believe it enough, God has to do it. No, no, faith cannot begin unless God has spoken. There are times that God has given us a promise, and his, well, every time that he's given us promise, his word, we, we, can, we can take it to the bank, he'll do it. Now, he gets to do it on his timetable and his way, but he will. You just ask whatever he's promised, if it's in his will, you got it. Now, at the same time, there are some times that God will actually give you a promise to you. There are those that say, God will say, I'm going to heal so-and-so, and he will. But faith is not me saying, well, since he healed so-and-so, that means he's going to heal my spouse. No, if he didn't say it. Peter, here's how you're going to die, and it's going to be a crucifixion. What about John? Well, what if I want him to remain alive? What if I want to heal that person of their cancer for my purposes and my glory, and I don't want to heal this person? What is that to you? You follow me. We cannot turn this amazingly, abundantly, more than we ever could ask or think, to the, or ever imagine, ask or think, to the point that we are God. And if we believe it, God will have to do it. There are people that have taken the biblical truth to an unbiblical direction. I'm not telling you to go there, but I am telling you this much. There's a whole lot more of what it means to be an old Christian walking in the power of God than we have. And first of all, in the context of Philippians, it's tied to not having a righteousness that comes from me. Before I'll even be able to move into an understanding of all that God wants to do in my life, I have to first believe that he will what if I've had a bad week? It ain't tied to how good you are. God spoke through a donkey. I used to think that my righteousness would be tied to how good I preached. And then some of the times when I knew I hadn't been as righteous as, I, let's just, I'll just put it to you, if I had done things that you had known I'd done that week, you wouldn't want to listen to me. Don't get righteous on me. If I knew what was going on in your life, I wouldn't even want to talk to you guys. So. <laughs> but God would do a work as I preached that day. And I said, whoa, 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 that, Lord, you, you shouldn't, you couldn't. I wasn't good enough this week for you to work that powerfully. And he's been teaching me over the years, it's not tied to you. Oh, listen, if I walk in continual disobedience, my father who loves me will begin to amp up the discipline. Oh, he's not mad. He's just going to win. You got a kid and they keep reaching up to touch the oven when they're cooking, you're baking in there and that glass is hot. You're going to say, don't touch the oven, honey. That's hot. If they keep trying to touch it, you're going to say, honey, don't touch it. It's hot. They keep trying to touch it. You may slap their hand. Eventually, you're going to say, you want to go there? <laughs> Have fun. Put your lips on it. <laughs> Maybe some of you parents didn't say that, but... Let me put it to you this way. God is protecting us far more than we'd ever realize. 
And if we continue to walk in disobedience, he may remove his hand of protection. Oh, is he mad at you? No. Is he trying to teach you a lesson? Not really in the way that we look at it. Is he trying to teach us? Yes. What did Jesus say to Paul when he revealed himself to him on the road to Damascus? He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, um, well, the psalmist puts it this way. Don't be like the horse or the mule that has to have a bit in its mouth to get it to go where it wants to be. Why don't you just surrender and let him be in charge of your life now? But before you can ever move into this power of his resurrection that's available to you and the things that he will do, not only in giving you victory over sin, but in using you for his purposes, a deeper understanding of him and his love. Before you can even go there, you have to first understand that not only did your righteousness for salvation begin with nothing with you. You can't even grow in your walk with Christ apart from him doing it. I'm going to wrap you up with one last verse, and we'll come back next week and look at Fellowship of Sharing and His Sufferings. Go to first, uh, sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 16 and 17. Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Paul does not say, now, because of all that God's done for you, you need to go do for him. He says, may God, who through Jesus Christ has given us this wonderful grace in which we now stand, May he first of all comfort your heart and may he establish you in every good work and word. Folks, you got something that God's showing you needs to be done. Ask him to do it and then believe that he will and go do it. Let's just say hypothetically, I have to forgive Ray, but I don't want to. Thank God I don't have that issue because who could not love Ray? But if I want to apply what we're looking at here, the scripture and the spirit of God showing me I need to forgive Ray. I don't want to forgive Ray. You want me to tell you what she did? Because I'm making this illustration up. I can come up with a really good one. <laughs> but God, you say you want me to forgive Ray. You're going to have to give me the ability to do this, God, because I can't and I don't want to. In my flesh, it ain't never going to happen. But you said you will work in me to both will and to act. That you will establish me in every good work and word. Therefore, Lord, I believe that you will give me your grace. And I'm not going to sit back and wait until I feel it. See the difference? I'm not going to sit back and wait until I feel it. I'm going to go forgive my sister because I believe you will. And as I walk in obedience to what he said, believing that he will, something happens, folks. As I say, Ray, I forgive you. Not only is she going, wow, I'm inside Father going, wow, I do. I actually forgive her. Something just happened inside of me that I didn't even. And you experience the power of the resurrection of Christ Jesus within you. You have to know what he said. You have to believe that he will do it. You ask him to do it. And then you go act like it's going to happen. Too many of us have said, well, he said this. I prayed and I waited. Did you catch it? 
you go do what it is you believe that he said he would do. You go do what you believe that he said he would do. Your actions will show what you really believe. Years ago, I was speaking at a youth conference in New Orleans, and the youth pastor who had uh, hired me to come had uh, cerebral palsy. And he didn't walk around too well because of his cerebral palsy, because he kind of was crippled, and he'd kind of walk like this, and getting in and out of chairs was hard. And one day, as I was teaching in a room full of young people, um, he was sitting in a chair, and I had prepared as an illustration talking about what we really believe is how we really act. It's one thing to say we believe, it's another th- our actions will show what we really believe. And I had the night before taken a bunch of big firecrackers and taken the time to remove all the gunpowder out of them and then put the fuses back in. And as I was teaching on this, I showed these kids this big handful of firecrackers. I said, do you all know what these are? They go, yeah, those are the big ones. I said, watch this. And I took out a lighter and I lit them all and I threw them under everybody's chairs. One of, the, one of the ones went right under my buddy's chair who had the cerebral palsy. And as every kid ran out of that room screaming, I mean, they, I mean, they just ran, trampled each other to get out of that room. He was going, you did me wrong. You did me wrong. And he couldn't get out of his chair. And then nothing happened. And I had to kind of call them all back in. And I'd say, well, what, what in the world was that all about? Why would you all take off running? You let fireworkers. I didn't hear anything, did you? Well, they were duds. But you believed that they weren't. And your actions came out of what you believed. Folks, I don't even have to ask you what you really believe when it comes to your walk with the Lord. See, we can pass the written test, but we're failing the driving test. What you really believe will be demonstrated by how you live. I don't know about you. I'm done trying to get better as a Christian. Oh, I'm not done getting better. I want a righteousness. I want a righteousness that doesn't come from me. Christians, I'm saved. I'm not saying I want to get saved. I want to grow in my walk with the Lord in a way that is only being done by him and not by me. And how it's starting to happen is I believe that the things he said he will do. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for this chance to come and to study your word. And actually, in a weird way, I hope we look forward to next week as we take a look at the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, becoming like you in your death and wrestling with this and somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Lord, there's so much confusion about that statement that Paul said and so much false teaching that's come out of that one little phrase at the end of this section. Lord, as we come back next week, you just show us the joy. Why we can say we rejoice in trials. We can rejoice in sufferings. Lord, help us to grasp that. Because honestly, especially as Americans, we, we, don't, we don't like it. We don't understand it. And we've never even gotten close to the depth of that. But Lord, I pray that what you've shown us tonight would begin to take root as we believe what you've said. May we believe that you're for us and that you'll never be against us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. You love us. You've spared us from your wrath. And if you pursued us when we were lost and were your enemy, how much more will you now pursue us in love as your children? Father, we have allowed what happens in this world to determine what we believe more than we have your word. We thank you for the fact that you save us because you've given us that promise. My prayer is that mine, as well as everyone else's that's listening here tonight, that our eyes of our hearts would be open 
that you would give us wisdom from your spirit and revelation so that we would know you better. We know this power that's available. Oh, Lord, may we not try to get this power so we can go do amazing things for you. Lord, may we just receive the amount that you have for us so that we can experience what you have for each of us. And whatever comes out of it, we'll leave that for you. I want to know you better. I want to know you better. May that be our heart's cry. May you put that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.